Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Help us to focus our attention upon your words. That we might gain understanding, that we might have a greater reverence for Christ and his ways, and that we might have a greater reverence for your word and a deeper love for you, God, and a commitment to your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I would say that we live in a society that is, in general, suspicious and even hostile to authority. There's a lot of reasons for why this is. I would say some of them are legitimate reasons, like the abuse of authority. We have seen over and over again in the political world, but also in the religious world, abuse of authority. And if you've seen enough abuse of authority, you'll start to question authority altogether. But there's also other reasons for a disdain or a distrust of authority. And I think one of those reasons is we live in a culture that basically idolizes individualism. The autonomy of the individual. No one else has a right to tell me how to live, not even my parents. And there are many other factors as well that I think inform this reality in our society. And as Christians, whether we want to admit it or not, we can take on the attitude of our society when it comes to authority. Yet if we're going to be faithful to the scriptures, if we're going to be faithful as Christians, we must affirm that authority and leadership are inherently good, even though they can be used for evil. In fact, they're so inherently good that they have far greater capabilities for evil. What you'll often find is that when something has great capability for good, it has even more capability for greater evil. And so this morning, we're looking at the final mark of a Christ-honoring church, and that final mark is a commitment to biblical church leadership and authority. Now, I've given you an outline there in your bulletin for you to be able to follow along, follow along with verses as well. Now, in order to understand biblical church leadership and authority, we just need to step back and actually look at the larger picture in regards to what is God's view of authority? What is the biblical understanding of authority and leadership in the scriptures? As I said, our, our culture has a disdain for authority or a distrust in regards to authority. And I think one of the main reasons for why that is, is that when you remove the notion of divine authority, you will inevitably weaken the notion of any authority. In other words, if you remove God, the supreme authority, you fundamentally begin to weaken the foundations for any kind of authority in society. See, when you remove divine authority, two things happen. One, humans try to take the place of divine authority. I would say a dictator is an example of that. They have placed themselves 
in the place of God, basically saying they have supreme rule over a people. Or the other thing that happens, or I would say it happens at the same time, is you see the disdain and corroding of authority within, a, within society. So you remove divine authority, and those two things tend to happen within a society. Why? Well, because if there's no supreme authority, no divine authority, then authority is merely a human construct. Which means it's, it's your view of authority versus mine. And, and why should you be in place of authority over me if it's merely a human construct? But here's the thing, even as a society that distrusts authority, we know that a society without authority would be utterly destructive. Dever says this, a a world without authority would be like desires with no restraints, a car with no controls, an intersection with no traffic lights, a game with no rules, a home with no parents. It might go on for a little while, but before long it would seem pointless, then cruel, and utterly tragic. That's the reality of a society without any form of authority. Now, Christians believe that there is a supreme authority over all things. That there is a God who is unique from all created things. He is an eternal being. He is necessarily existent. And he has supreme authority over all of creation. He doesn't have just authority. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains life. He judges life. He takes life. He gives life. He has absolute rule over the cosmos. But we also believe as Christians that God extends and entrusts his authority to his creatures. So in Genesis 1, 26 to 30, God gives humanity, Adam and Eve, authority over the creation. He he tells them to have dominion over the creation. And in the Old Testament, God entrusts his authority to priests, prophets, and kings. They were given the task of representing God to the people. God also gives authority to government. In Romans 13.1, Paul writes, and you've got to understand this, here's a Jewish man writing and saying, we are to be subject to Roman rule, okay? They were not moral rulers, but this is what Paul writes. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities For there is no authority except from God. There's not a single authority on earth except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. See, the Bible clearly teaches that there is an authority structure within our world. There's not only authority in the government, but there's also authority structure within the home. 
Ephesians 5 says this in verse 22 to 24, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church, church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, to, submit in everything to their husbands. So wives are to submit to their husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ, but here's the responsibility of husbands. And husbands, you actually, in a sense, we have a harder task. Here's why. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you think, oh, my wife's supposed to submit to me in the sense that I can have dominance in our home, that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is with your headship, with your authority in the home, you are to love your family, love your wife specifically as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. There's an authority structure within the home. We also see that with children. In Ephesians 6, 1-4, kids, listen up. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, Though children are to obey you, then we are told, do not provoke your children to anger. Don't abuse your authority, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So God gives authority to government. He gives authority within the home. We also see that he gives authority to the church. We, we looked at this two weeks ago in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, that God has given the keys, Christ has given the keys to the church to affirm and disaffirm those who belong to the church of Jesus Christ. There's an authority that has been entrusted to the church. You see, there is an authority structure that God has established for human flourishing. And of course, that structure often gets abused and twisted due to sinful human beings. But here's the thing. The Bible only ever speaks positively about authority. What it condemns is the abuse of authority, what we would call authoritarianism. You see, if you're a Christian, you can't believe that authority is inherently bad. You can't. Because you believe that there is a supreme, infinite authority over all things, namely God. And this supreme authority, God, has established finite, subordinate authority in the structures of our world. See, Christians should have 
the highest, highest regard for authority within society. In fact, Christians should be the most hesitant to rebel against those in authority. We live in a culture that, that delights in rebellion. We as Christians should be the most hesitant to rebel against those in authority, even when those authorities are corrupt. See, the only justification for rebelling against any forms of authority in the scripture is when those authorities demand us to disobey the supreme authority, which is God. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to be gullible as Christians and just trust authority blindly. But it does mean that we ought to have the greatest reverence and respect for authority because we believe that there is a God who has supreme authority and he has established all finite human authority. Now, the reason I've started here is to establish as Christians that we shouldn't be suspicious of authority especially in the church. It's also important that we understand that the authority structures within the church are not man-made, but they've been ordained by God for the good and the health of his church. So that, that's the big picture, a very small sample size of, of the biblical understanding of authority. Secondly, we need to look at the authority and the leadership within the local church. God has established that leadership within the local church is given to a plurality of men that the Bible refers to as elders or overseers, what we call often as pastors. Pastor is simply another word for shepherd. And so elders and overseers are given, they're the same thing, elders and overseers are given the primary, ta primary task of pastoring, shepherding God's people. So let me just quote off to you some verses that, that speak of overseers. We're going to touch on deacons this morning, but my main focus is looking at elders and overseers. So Philippians 1.1, Paul writes to the Philippian church in his greeting, he says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So basically, to the whole church in Philippi. And then he says this, with the overseers and deacons. With the overseers and deacons. He's acknowledging that there are overseers overseeing the local church in Philippi. 1 Timothy 3.1, which, which uh, Jim read for us, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, so it's an office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. In Titus 1, 5-7, Paul writes to young Titus, and here you see in this passage the relationship between an elder and an overseer. He uses the term synonymously. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So he makes this connection that elders and overseer, you're to appoint elders for an overseer is like this. Elders are overseers. Acts 20, 70 to 18 
Paul's on his way to Jerusalem, but he calls the elders in Ephesus to come to him. And he says this, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and then he said a bunch of things. And then down in verse 28 of Acts 20, pay careful attention. So he's still speaking to these elders from Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the Bible clearly demonstrates that God has designed for churches to have elders who lead who, and have a certain level, a certain kind of authority within the local church. Now this doesn't mean that the members that make up the local church have no authority or no role to play. We saw two weeks ago, right, in Matthew 18, that the church has been given the keys of the kingdom to affirm and also disaffirm people from the membership of a church. There's an authority within the local church itself given by Christ. This is why, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul commands the church to remove the man who had been sleeping with his father's wife, notice in 1 Corinthians 5 that he doesn't rebuke the elders alone, but he rebukes the whole church for tolerating such sin. If the elders had all the authority and the members had no authority, it would be natural for Paul to rebuke the elders for such toleration of sin. But he doesn't do that. He rebukes the church because he understands the local church to have a responsibility and authority for the church itself. This is also why in Galatians 1, Paul rebukes the church in Galatia for, fault, for tolerating false teachers. See, though we know from Scripture that elders are responsible to guard against false doctrine, the local church is also responsible. So let me, let me give you an example of this. We have three elders currently here at Royal York Baptist Church. Myself, Peter, I know there's a lot of Peters, but the one who prayed, um, Peter, me, Peter, and also Melvin. Now, let's say all of us elders the three of us, started to deny that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Now, God would hold us as elders responsible for such a thing. But he would also hold you, the members of Royal York, responsible for whether or not you tolerate such sin. In other words, as the local church you have the responsibility to remove us men from the eldership if we were to abandon the word of God. You would have the biblical grounds to do so. And that's important. You need to have biblical grounds. It can't be simply, well, I don't like Pastor Peter this week. Or Pastor Peter did something I didn't like. So God has entrusted authority and leadership into the hands of qualified elders or pastors, but that doesn't mean the church doesn't have a level of responsibility and authority as well. And that's why, as pastors, we talk about the importance of you knowing the Word of God, because you actually have a responsibility in the life of the church. The reason I stress that is because there are churches that operate 
as though the elders have absolute authority and the members have no voice. And I do not want that here. I want the members to have a voice in the life of Royal York, to have a say, because you are the church of Jesus Christ. Now, with all that being said, a local church must always remember, both members and elders, that Jesus Christ alone has supreme authority over the local church. Both members and elders must submit to his leadership no matter what. Our leadership as elders and our authority are bound by a greater authority, namely Jesus Christ. We saw that in Colossians 1, which I read at the very beginning. He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the body, the church. In Ephesians 1, and 23, we're told, And God put all things under his feet, that is Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ alone has supreme authority over the church universal and over the church locally. He's the only authority and leader that never misuses his authority because he is utterly sinless. He is completely righteous. Every other authority in the church is under the authority of Christ. In other words, as the pastor of this church, I don't have the kind of authority to do whatever I want. The authority, the the leadership position I've been given is to submit myself primarily to the authority of Christ and to do what he wants for his church. And the primary way we do this as a local church is by obeying and submitting to his word. You see, there are, there are boundaries that dictate the use and limitations of our authority. Our authority is bound by the word of God and the Lord Jesus. See, here's the reality. The Bible makes very clear that in order to be in authority, you must be under authority. There's no category in the Bible where someone is in authority, but they are not under authority. Any person who is in a position of authority must understand that they must be also under an authority. See, the nature of our leadership is to submit ourselves to a greater authority, which is Jesus Christ and his word. So within the local church, God has established that leaders within the local church should be qualified men, elders who are responsible in leading the church. Now that leads to the third point, which is, what are the qualifications for those positions? What are the qualifications of an elder or a pastor? Well, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Paul here is speaking about basically order in the church, structure in the church. And this is what Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that is of an elder, he desires a noble tax, task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. 
That is, he must be blameless. Paul's not saying sinless. There's not a single person who's sinless. There's not a single pastor who's sinless. But he's saying he's blameless. That is, he lives a life of integrity. That if people were to to look at him and know him, they would say he's a man of integrity. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have faults. It doesn't mean that he doesn't stumble. But he's a man of integrity. And then I think what Paul does here is he unpacks for us what that actually looks like. What does it look like to be a man above reproach? And then he says, the husband of one wife. Really what, what Paul's saying there is one woman kind of man. He's devoted and committed to his wife. He's sober-minded. That is, he has command of his reason. He's balanced in his assessments. In a sense, you could say his head's not in the clouds. He, he understands reality. He, he knows the things in the church. He, he knows his own weaknesses, his strengths. He's aware. He's balanced in his assessments. Not only that, he's to be self-controlled. He's to have general control over his behavior and impulses. He's respectable. That is, he conducts himself in a manner worthy of honor. He's hospitable. All Christians are called to be hospitable, but elders should lead the way in this. Not only that, he must be able to teach. Now, this is the only qualification that is based upon competency. An elder must be able to teach and handle God's word. It doesn't mean that he has to be an incredible preacher. It just means that he can open this book, he can explain it to people, and people understand it. He must be able to handle God's word. He must not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I wonder how many prosperity preachers have read that verse. Not a lover of money. Doesn't mean that he can't have money, but he must not be a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And then he says why in verse 5. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's household? Um, How will he care for God's church? Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. Why? Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If someone made me an elder when I was 19, that would be disastrous. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, we understand that sometimes pastors can be ridiculed by outsiders because of their beliefs. That's not what Paul's speaking to here. That's Paul speaking just to the reality that that. If your neighbors know you, if you've worked in a secular environment, would those people speak well of you? Would they say, yeah, he, he's a man who, who's kind, he, he, he's, he's not a jerk, basically, right? Now, after this, he, he lists the qualifications for elders. He then goes on to deacons, and so I just want to touch briefly on deacons. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now in verse 11, 
probably in your translations, it says, their wives, likewise, must be dignified. But it's probably better translated as the women, likewise, must be dignified. Now, there's debate over this Greek terminology because the, the, the word for wife and women in the Greek is the same word, okay? But based upon the context, I think Paul's talking here about women deaconesses. The women, likewise, must be dignified. Now, I'm not going to go into my argumentation this morning for why I think that is, okay, because I just don't have time to, but I think Paul's here saying that deacons can both be men and female, whereas elders are only for, elders is specifically only for a specific group of men who meet a specific qualification, okay? So the women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And then he goes back to male deacons. Let deacons each be the house husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the word deacon is simply the word servant. Okay? But it's being used here in a formal sense. Now, if you noticed, the one qualification that isn't required of deacons, but is required of elders, is an ability to teach. Deacons do not need to have an ability to teach because the role of a deacon is primarily about service. So what is the role of the deacon? Well, to be honest, the Bible doesn't have a ton to say, actually, about what deacons do. But based upon the small evidence in Scripture that we have, probably the best way to think of deacons is as assistants to the elders. They assist the elders in the life of the church. That is, they help the elders in caring for the needs of the church. Primarily for the purpose of freeing the elders to focus their energy and time on the ministry of the word and prayer. And I think Acts 6 is, is somewhat of a demonstration of this, where the apostles say that they, they should not be giving up their time to, to serve tables, but they should be focusing their time to the ministry of the word and prayer, and therefore they call the church to find worthy individuals who will then care for those needs. And Lord willing, over time, I hope that at Royal York, we will both have elders and deacons established in the life of our church. Now, one last passage that, that speaks of the qualifications of elders, which is Titus 1, 5-9. I've already made reference to it, but I just want to read it for us because it's very similar to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3. This is what he says to Timothy. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, there it is again, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must. It's not an option. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 
So you see these qualifications. They are intense. They are not a light matter. And, and, and I'm going to say this, and, and I, I mean this respectfully. Problems happen all the time in a local church, even when you have good, qualified elders, because we're all sinners. We all bring our problems. But hear this. There are a ton of problems that churches have faced primarily because they did not take these qualifications seriously. And they allowed men into positions of authority who were not worthy of such positions. I think the major reason why many churches die is because churches have allowed men who are not worthy or deserving of such a responsibility into those positions. So these are the qualifications of elders and deacons within the life of the church. And so part of the task of the elders, but also the members, is to identify these kinds of individuals so that they can serve as elders in the church for the overall good of the church. Elders and deacons are a gift to the church, and we ought to thank God for them. So that's the qualifications of elders and deacons, but what about their role? What's the role of an elder? And that leads to my first, fourth point, the role of elders and pastors to the church. First, we can say this. As overseers, they're to give oversight to the church. That's pretty obvious, right? This doesn't mean that they're to do everything, but it does mean they're to give oversight. They're, they're to know what's going on in the life of the church, and they're to influence the life of the church. So, so let, me, let me illustrate a way in which this might happen in our church. So right now, for example, we have Royo Kids Ministry, which Becky and Jess are leading. They're overseeing that ministry. Now, what is, what is my role as their elder in giving oversight to that ministry? Well, to be honest with you, it depends on the situation. It depends on who Becky and Jess are. Are they newer in the faith? So will they need more of my oversight? Or because they've been Christians for so long and they've been a part of a church for so long, I can free them up completely just to take that ministry on, and yet I'm still giving oversight, and, and Becky is still coming to me and, and telling me the curriculum. She showed me the book that they're using. I went through it. I thought it was great. I said, go for it, right? And I'm not there every Wednesday night. I don't want to be there. I want to free them up to serve the Lord. Oversight, I think for a lot of pastors, can become control. I do not want to control the members of Royal York Baptist Church. I want to free you up to serve the Lord, to use the gifts that you've been given in the way that God has wired you. All I want to do is come along and assist. And yes, there might be times where I got to actually come in and change something because something's gone dreadfully wrong. But for the most part, I want to free you up as the members to serve the Lord. I want to simply be a resource, an assistant in a sense to you in any way that I can. You see, the oversight of elders shouldn't hinder people from serving, but free them to serve. Second, elders are also responsible to shepherd, guard, and watch over the people, that is the sheep. In Acts 20, 28 to 31, 
Paul is speaking to the believers in Ephesus before he heads to Jerusalem, and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves. So the elders, you you ought to pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Therefore, be on guard, elders, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Care for the church of God. Guard the church of God. You see, elders need to be gentle, but they also need to have a backbone. Because there are wolves. And there are wolves that are seeking the sheep of God. In other words, elders need to be like Jesus. Jesus was utterly gentle. But when he needed to use his authority, he was fierce. He was terrifying. Hebrews 13, 17, the writer of Hebrews says about elders' roles. Obey your leaders. So he's speaking to the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then he says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Elders are responsible for keeping watch over the souls of their sheep as those who will have to give an account. That is a weighty verse for people like me. We will give an account for how we have watched over the souls of our sheep. And hear me, this is why membership is so important. Because this helps me know who are actually the sheep that I'm supposed to be watching over. Simply attending here does not make you one of the sheep that I'm supposed to watch over. It's not until you place yourself under the authority of this local church do you actually become one of the sheep that I am primarily concerned for. 1 Peter 5, 1-4, Peter also says this about elders, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's the responsibility of elders. They're to shepherd, guard, and watch over the sheep. Thirdly, they're also called to teach and guard the doctrine of the church. In Acts 6, 1-4, we have this situation, right, where um, the, the, the widows, some of them are not being cared for, and so this is what happens. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists that is, the Hellenist Jews, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, Elders are not apostles, so we just need to make that very clear. But there is a relationship in their role, in that apostles in the early church were the primary teachers of God's revelation. And as the church unfolds and the apostles die off, 
elders, pastors, become the primary teachers of the apostles' teaching, right? In Acts 2, commit yourself to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so as, as one of the elders, the primary teaching elder here at Royal York, I should devote myself fundamentally before anything else to prayer and the ministry of the word. I should devote myself to that. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4, Paul writes this to young Timothy who, who would have been very much an elder in Ephesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 1 Timothy 4, 13-16. Until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Why? For by so doing, you will save both, your, both yourself and your hearers. I see my teaching role, my preaching role, as primarily seeking to save my hearers, even the Christians, because I want you to endure to the end. 2 Timothy 1, 13-14, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guard the gospel, Timothy, that's been entrusted to you. I could go on verse after verse about the role of pastors and elders being responsible for the teaching and doctrine of the church. And the purpose of all of this, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So elders have a responsibility not only to guard and care for the flock, but also to guard and teach the word. Fourth, and the final thing that they are to do, is to train up other men to be elders. 2 Timothy 2, 1-2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's what authority is ultimately about. It's about entrusting. It's about giving, in a sense, away your authority to others, just like God gives his authority away to his children. So these are the roles of elders and pastors. To lead and give oversight to shepherd, to guard, and to watch over the sheep, to teach and protect the doctrine of the church, and to equip other men for such task. Now, that's the role of elders. What is the role of members to their elders? Okay, so I've just unpacked for us what is the role of elders to the members. What is the role of members to their elders? And I just want to touch on a few things. There's the, the typical 
all the basically commands in the New Testament, you are to, that, that's your role as a Christian, not just to your fellow members, but also to your pastors. But there are a few things specifically in regards to your relationship to your elders. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Now that's not popular in our culture. But as members of a local church, you are to obey your leaders and you are to submit to them. They don't have supreme authority. If they ask you to do something that's against God's word, you don't submit. But you are to obey your leaders and to submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then he says this, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, your obedience and your submission to your elders and the way you relate to them and the way you live as a Christian life, your desire should be to see your elders serving as elders with joy, not with groaning. There are a lot of Christians, I shouldn't say a lot, there are some Christians who make it their ministry goal to make pastors miserable. (laughs) But I want to encourage you As a Christian, in the same way that you want to bring joy to Christ, seek to bring joy to your pastors by the way you live and how you relate to them. And in the same way, as I am called to work for your progress and joy in the faith. So obey your leaders, submit to them, do this, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 14, we ask you brothers also to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Esteem them very highly in love. That is, show them honor because you actually love them. So obey, submit to them, honor them, respect them. Not only that, the local church has the primary responsibility for caring for the material needs of their elders, specifically their elders who are doing full-time pastoral ministry. 1 Timothy 5.17, that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, what is double honor? Well, he says especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And then he explains what double honor is. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, he's quoting from the Old Testament. God, for, God gave a command to the people of Israel that when you use your ox to, to uh, tread out the grain, don't put a muzzle so that he doesn't eat it. That's not the way to care for an ox. The ox is doing work for you, right? Take the muzzle off and let him eat as he works. So I'm an ox, okay? And the the imagery is the man who is working the field, so to speak, let him make his wages off of the work that he is doing. 1 Corinthians 9, 13 to 14, do you not know, and Paul uses another Old Testament imagery, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In other words, in the Old Testament, God had established that the Levites and the priests would get their provision from the sacrifices that were given from the people. 
They would survive, they would meet their needs that way. And that's why Paul says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, I realize that this can come across as self-serving, but this is not my goal this morning, but I want to say this. The number one reason for pastors leaving the ministry is because of not enough finances to care for their family. It's the number one reason. And I'm not saying this about rural York, okay? I'm saying this in general about many churches. There is sometimes a theology in churches. It's called the poor pastor theology. The goal is to keep the pastor poor. And I'm not saying this in regards to me. I feel completely cared for here at Royal York. But I do want to say this, that as a church, I hope we really truly seek to, Lord willing, when we establish more pastors on staff, we really truly seek to care for our pastors, to provide for them, to be able to meet their needs, so that, here's why, so that they don't need to worry monthly about where they're going to get their food from or whether they're going to make the bills so that they can then focus fully and give their full attention to the church and to the people. Now I'll add two other things quickly that you ought to be responsible for in regards to your elders. You ought to pray for your elders. Above everything else, if I could stand here Representing the elders here at Royal York, I ask you to pray for us. Paul often asked churches to pray for him. And one of the best things you can do as a member of a church is not only pray for other members, but also your pastors. Listen, elders are to keep the members of the church accountable to God. I have a responsibility to keep you all accountable to the Lord, but hear this. I would also argue that members have a task in keeping their elders accountable as well. And this goes back to the authority of the local church. You're to keep the elders accountable by expecting them to be faithful to their calling and faithful to God's word. And from my heart to you, I want to say this. Before I am your pastor, I am your brother. Which means you ought not be afraid to have input into my life. So, obey and submit to your elders, respect and esteem them in love, support them financially by caring for their material needs, pray for them, and expect them to be faithful to God's word. And finally, the last thing, I just want to speak to the nature of the elders' leadership and authority. We've looked at the role of elders, but I want to look at the nature of their authority, the, the attitude, so to speak, of their authority. And 1 Peter 5, 1-4, I think, captures this well, where Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as, a well, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he says this, not under compulsion, but willingly. We as elders should not be eldering if we see this as compulsion. We should do it willingly, that is joyfully, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then he says this, not domineering over those in your charge. 
Eldership is not about domineering over those in your charge, but he says, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We as elders are not to dominate the sheep. We are to set an example to the sheep. In 2 Timothy 4.2, where Paul speaks about Timothy preaching the word, he says this, and, and it's so easy for pastors to forget this. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Then he says this, with complete patience. Complete patience. In other words, I ought not preach in such a way that I expect you to be completely changed by tomorrow. I ought to call you to things, but I ought to have a a long game, so to speak, when I think about who you are and where you're going to be, Lord willing, 20 years from now. I ought to be patient with the sheep as I teach them. See, really, this is the point. The attitude and nature of how elders lead and use their authority should be like that of Jesus Christ. Like a shepherd caring and serving his sheep. As Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. See, all true authority and leadership is sacrificial in nature. Church, this is the ninth mark of a Christ-honoring church. A commitment to biblical leadership and authority. And when biblical leadership and authority, I believe, are practiced rightly, this is what I think you can expect in the life of a church. These are David's last words in 2 Samuel 23, 3-4. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to spout from the earth. In other words, when elders lead the way they are supposed to lead and they're qualified for such a task, they bring life, not death. That's what leadership and authority ought to produce. So this brings our series to a close. Praise the good Lord. And I pray that we as a church would truly strive to honor Christ by being committed to expository preaching, biblical theology, the study of God's word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, a biblical understanding of conversion, evangelism, evangelism, meaningful membership, church discipline, discipleship and growth, and biblical church leadership. So let me pray and ask that God would do that for us here at Royal York. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for your wisdom that you have established an order in the life of your people. And Lord, I pray that as a church, you would raise up worthy men to be elders here at Royal York And you'd also raise up worthy men and women to be deacons here at Royal York. People who love you, who meet the qualifications, and who seek to serve your people. Lord, help us to be a church committed to these truths in your scriptures. To strive for them, acknowledging that we will fall short on a regular basis, but knowing that there is grace and mercy that sustains 
Help us, Lord, above everything else, to honor Jesus Christ as a local church. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.